God bless you all. It's good to see you here at the house of the Lord. We are continuing our work series this week. Um, we started it last week. I hope that it has been a blessing to all of you as we start looking at work through the scriptures. I pray that all of you may be blessed as we just continue expounding and elaborating what work is according to the Bible. You know, there was a time when only godly and spiritual jobs were those of the clergy. You had to become a priest, a nun, or a monk, or a missionary for your work to be considered godly. But this type of thinking, it's unfortunate, but it's still prevalent today. Fortunately, there are Christians who have discovered the truth about work, the truth the Bible presents about work. 500 years ago, the Great Reformation occurred. That, that changed the world in ways we cannot imagine. One way that the Great Reformers changed the world was by influencing the way people see work. The Reformer Martin Luther and John Calvin argued that work even so-called secular work was as much important, as much as a calling from God as the ministry of the monk or a priest. The Lutherans saw that all workers who make things, who promote justice, who help the world turn, who make the world beautiful, all these workers are the fingers of God, the agents of his love for others. Today, if you have your Bibles, please open it up to Genesis 2, a passage that has really influenced the reformers to believe that all work, all work that pushes forward God's creation project is godly work. Last time we read an entire chapter for this series, and we'll do it again today. Um, and it's the last time, I promise. But uh, it, it is a smaller chapter, so it, uh, it won't take as long. And, but the, the first two chapters are really critical to the, the series that we have started. And it's critical to who we are as humans. Genesis 2, starting with verse 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out, uh, out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out 
uh, out from Eden and to water the garden. From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedalum and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us empty, but giving us a story. A story where we could find truths about life, about humanity, about the world. Thank you, God, for not leaving us empty, but speaking to us, God. And I pray that today, as we spend time together, your spirit may come into our lives and unpack what this story has to say about our lives, about work, about everything that you want us to know about this story, Lord. Guide us and be with us. Thank you for the songs that we sang, God. Thank you for the presence that we have with one another and the presence of your spirit. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we talked about creation, about God, about humans, about work. All these things are interconnected. Today, we are still talking about origins, but Genesis 2 is different from Genesis 1. Last week, we had a cosmic view of creation. It was broad. It was big. God made everything. Genesis 2 is more specific. The story of creation now focuses on people. A German scholar said that Genesis 2 was a more intense reflection 
upon the implications of creation for the destiny of humanity. In other words, we could say that Genesis 1, this picture that we had from Genesis 1, we could see this one and see that this is cosmic. This is God as being transcendent, meaning that he is beyond anything that we could see, transcendent. I always have to like say it out loud to remember how it's spelled. It's true. God is transcendent. He is beyond this world. He is great. He is big. But in Genesis 2, in this picture that we see here, God is very imminent, meaning that he is close. He is both beyond this world, and yet he's also close to this world. God looks like in Genesis 1, like he's super far, super distant. He's creating everything, and he's super powerful. But in Genesis 2, we also see that God is imminent. He looks like he's super close. He's planting and he's gardening. It's like, yes, you know, God is super strong and powerful and we should revere him as such. But at the same time, he's super close like a father and we could always approach him. God saw the land that he had planted in Genesis 2. He saw that there was a need for people to take care of the land. Therefore, God formed man, just like a potter forms beautiful art pieces from clay. God forms man out of the dust. And some translations, or some people have seen it as mud. The word for man is Adam, which is also his proper name, um, Adam. But Adam in Hebrew just means man or humanity. And Adam, he is made from dust. And the word for dust is Adama. So there's like a word play uh, taking place because Adam is made from Adama, which is dust. With the dust, God molds and breathes his breath into that dust, thereby creating man. It's interesting to see how God created us. He didn't think that the material world that he had created was evil. In fact, he used the material world to create humans. God created the material world. There are people who wrongly think that all we are is spirit. This body we just carry around, it's just luggage, they think. But God actually formed us with our physical body. We are both material and immaterial. This body does make us who we are. God made this body, and it's good. We're not just spirit. We're spirit and body. Augustine talked about this back in the day. Augustine, he was a brilliant Christian from the 4th and 5th century. He belonged, before becoming a Christian, to a sect that believed that the material world was evil and we need to be delivered from this evil world, from this material world. But Augustine, upon becoming a Christian, he noted, for they say, why did God make man from mud? 
Did he lack a better or, and heavenly material from which he could make man? That he formed him fragile and mortal from this earthly corruption? God did not lack heavenly material, but he chose to use earthly material because he thought that earthly material was good. This world is not bad. The physical is not bad. The Garden of Eden, the picture of paradise, did not occur in a place outside of this world. It did not take place in a different realm. It took place here on the earth, heaven on earth. We don't, have, we don't know exactly where Eden was located, but we do know it was on this earth. Some have speculated because of the reference to the Tigris and the Euphrates River that the garden was somewhere in the Middle East, maybe in the Armenian hill country or in Babylon, which I tried my best drawing a map, giving an idea of where it could have been in this area, although, again, we're not certain where it actually was. But all we know is that it was on this earth. It's not like an utter an outside plane in a different world. It was here on earth in this physical world where we are walking and breathing. Within this garden, there were plants, animals, and things were as they ought to be. Things were in harmony. Shalom. There were also two unique trees. The first tree was the tree of life. And some people, some people believe that this tree of life, it could give immortality. And this other tree was the tree of knowledge. And we'll see this tree come into play next week. But there were these two trees. And biblical writers like the ones of Proverbs and Revelation, they identified the tree of life as the source of life in the garden. The other tree, good of evil and some people wondered, God says, don't eat from it, but some people wondered, why is this tree even offered? But the main point is that God was giving them an opportunity to choose whether they wanted to obey God or disobey him. God placed Adam, man, in the garden for him to take care and to work the land. Humans were supposed to work. Meredith Klein said, God's making the world was like a king's planting, a farm or park or orchard into which God put humanity to serve the ground and to serve and look after the estate. Humans were supposed to be gardeners. The first calling that God gave humans was not to be a pastor or a missionary or even a doctor, but the first calling was to garden and be good stewards. God had given this garden, this sacred place, and the humans were supposed to take care of the land. The Hebrew word for work is this word called abed. Abed. Which is an interesting word because this is the same word that the Hebrews used to describe what the priests would do within the temple. The priests abed in the temple. Humans abed in the garden. Priests worked in the sacred place known as the temple. Humans 
worked in the sacred place known as the Garden of Eden. And now the entire world. The work that priests do, the work that Adam and Eve did, the work that you do on this earth, it's all a bed. It's all connected. And a bed is also connected to worship. When the priests worked in the temple, they were worshiping God. When Adam and Eve worked in the garden, they were worshiping God. When we work in this world, we are worshiping God. Worship is not just something that we do corporately. It's not just limited to our singing. We also worship through our work. That's how God designed it. Work is worship. We don't have to compartmentalize work and worship. Oh, we just worship at church. No, you also worship through your work, through how you work. When you are gardening and taking care of this world, when you are helping people flourish, when you make this world, when you make this community a better place, that's when you are worshiping. When you are worshiping God, you are saying he is worthy. He is worthy, and thus you dedicate what you are doing to him. In Adam's case, and also in our case, God has appointed us to be a good steward. Make good use of what God has created. The jobs of humans are to take, of what, uh, take what God left us in the garden, what God has given us in this world. Take all the raw material, the gold, the dirt, the, everything that we find on this earth. Take that raw material that God has left in front of you. Work it. Take care of it. Rule it. Subdue it. And push the creation project forward as an act of service and worship to God, the God who made you. You're not just a mom or a dad getting your kids to school or reading a story before bedtime. You're doing what God has called you to do. Has called you to do. He has called you to be fruitful and to increase in numbers. You're not just a contractor or a construction worker who works long and hard days in the heat or in the cold. You're cultivating, using the raw material, cultivating the earth, drawing out its potential, and reshaping the world into an environment for people to live as God intended. You're not just a gardener. You're not just a sorter of packages. You're not just a cashier. You're not just a teller. You're not just a painter. You're not just an engineer. You're not just a chef. You're not just a scientist. You're not just an entrepreneur. You are doing what God has told you to do through your work. You are continuing the creation project, and you are worshiping God. This is what we are called to do. We are called to continue the creation project of God. Maybe you have heard this word. It is called vocation. 
Not vacation, but vocation. <laughs> vocation. This word comes from the Latin word vocatio, which essentially means calling. Your vocation is your calling. But most of us don't see our jobs as our calling. We see being a missionary or a pastor as a vocation. But in reality, God calls bankers, bakers, artists, moms, dads, teachers, coffee baristas, car salespeople, as much as he calls pastors and missionaries. Your vocation doesn't have to be a spiritual type of job or career. Let's, let's reflect on this some more. God created humans with the ability to do their work effectively here on earth. Adam, he had the ability to take care of the land. But what has God called you to do? How has he gifted you? How are you going to push forward God's creation project? I think it's something you have to unearth, something you have to discover, dig out. Maybe take an assessment. Ask a lighter for details on some assessments. Adam was a gardener, hence he gardened. Who are you? What do you think God has made you to do? Who are you? How are you hardwired by your maker? What were you made to do? I think that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. You can't be anything you want, frankly. Adam couldn't have been a pilot, even if he believed with all his heart. I can't be anything I would wish to be, regardless of how hard I work or how much I believe in myself. All I can be is me. Dr. Seuss said, today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. I am who God has created me to be. And he loves me for me. And I have certain gifting, and I lack in certain areas. You need to recognize that, sure, you could do something you weren't made to do, but even if you're successful, it will come back to to eat you alive. I could say this from my experience. If you're an introvert and you go into sales and you're with people 10 hours a day, it will probably suck you dry. There's another place I could speak from experience. If you're a thinker with an appetite for learning, but you go into manual labor where there's little mental energy required, it's going to drive you insane. If you're a natural leader but never have an opportunity to lead, you're going to go nuts. Our vocation matches who we are designed to be. Sadly, most of us are not doing what God has called us to be. At least, not yet. Of course, we are thankful for a job. We sometimes just need to get the bag to survive. And yes, with Jesus, it doesn't matter what job we have, because with Jesus, we have it all. But still, I think what we do should grow from who we are. 
John Mark Comer noted that as a society, we are overworked, tired, stressed out, and frazzled. But burnout isn't the result of giving too much. It's not always the result of giving too much. Burnout sometimes is the result of trying to give something you don't have to give in the first place. It is very likely that you are burnt out, not because you are working too much, but instead you are burnt out because you are working a job that requires something from you that you don't possess. Like you feel that a part of you dies when you go to work, even if you didn't do anything wrong at work. We need to embrace who God created us to be and recognize the limits that we have. We are made out of dust, after all. We can't do it all. When we start recognizing, okay, I'm kind of good at this, and I enjoy this, and I'm helping people. And when you start recognizing, okay, I'm not good at that. I hate that. You start to realize what your vocation is, and you could start to focus on what you do enjoy and what you don't enjoy and what you're not good at. Try to find things that you love, that you're passionate about. My professor, Gary Brashear, said, figure out what you love and then see if you can make a living at it. Realists, Realists right now might be like, come on, we can't do that. Not everyone who enjoys music can become a musician. And you might be right. But here's a story about Casey. Casey wanted to be a career musician so bad. He loved the guitar and singing. He was a good songwriter and even made a decent record. But he didn't sell enough to make a living. Then his wife got pregnant, so he needed a job that could help him take care of his family. Initially, Casey was bummed out and depressed since he couldn't pursue his passions anymore. He had to take care of his family. But then he had the idea, I could start a guitar shop with amazing guitars. He didn't become the famous singer that he wanted to be, but he was still able to take his passion, music, and turn it into a living. Reach for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Follow your passions, the passions that God has given you. Fortunately, in this country, we are able to do that. In other countries, we just work whatever job we could find. But here we have more opportunities. And you should at least try to find your vocation. Take the opportunity you have in this country. Now, of course, you need more than passion. What God has called you to, he has also qualified you for. God called Adam to take care of the land. He then qualified or equipped Adam so that he could be able to take care of the land. How many of us know people who wanted to sing, wanted to rap, maybe play football, play basketball, design clothing, but they were just not good at it? Passion is good, but so is ability. 
Both are necessary. So when you are doing something you are passionate about, ask yourself, are you good at it? Do other people notice that you're good at the activity? If no one says that you're good at it, or if people who you trust are kind enough to tell you that maybe you should give something else a try, <laughs> accept it and embrace it. Don't run from it. You're just not good at that. But there could be something else that you're good at. John Mark Homer puts it this way when somebody tells you, celebrate it. Every time you fail, throw a party. You just took another step forward in learning what you're not called to do. It's not failure if you fail at doing something you're not supposed to do. It's not failure if you fail at doing something you're not supposed to do. It's success because you're getting a clearer sense of your calling. You know, I'm not good at labor work. Can I give it a shot? Absolutely, if necessary. But I discovered I'm not good at that. I want to take the time to think through things. I'm also not a good salesperson, and I'm okay with that. I'm good at reading. I could get my thoughts together in writing, and I enjoy teaching. I accept what I'm good at and accept what I'm not good at. I, so vocation consists of passion and ability, and it also consists of building the garden and taking care of it. Frederick Bruckner said, work is the place where your deep gladness, the things you enjoy and that you're passionate about, it meets the world's deep hunger. Your passion somehow helps this world. Through work, you feel like you're using all of your abilities and and you should also strive to fulfill the world's deep hunger through your work. Ask, with regards to your work, does it contribute to human flourishing? Is it good for the earth? Is it good for you? Good for your city, your nation, your world? Good for culture? There are some jobs, some things that cannot be a vocation, a calling. Using your body in a pornographic or sexualized way cannot be a vocation. Manipulating first-time homebuyers into loans they can't afford cannot be a vocation. Murdering people or lying to people cannot be a vocation. All vocations need to make this world a better place. It needs to make this world like Eden. Eden. Everything in shalom, in harmony. Vocation makes the world better. If you see a door open for you to start your vocation, take it. Ask the Spirit to help you find your vocation. Ask people close to you to help you discover your talents. I want us to be able to do what God has created us to do. If you're like Adam and you're a gardener, then garden. If God made you to paint, then paint. If God made you to mature, to nurture and teach and unfold children, then do that. If God made you to build bridges, get to work. If God made you to teach philosophy, go do that. Take the long route. Get names after, get letters after your name. Whatever you're called to do, 
do it. Do it. Otherwise, you are robbing yourself from what God has called you to do. And you are also robbing us, robbing the world from your gifting. Let the world see how you could flourish. As Comer said, don't sell us short. Give us all you got. And you can't do it on your own. Something to note is that Adam needed a helper. He needed somebody else. It was not good for her, for him to be alone. He was unable to do the work himself. Therefore, God created Eve. This shows us that we cannot do the work of continuing the creation project alone. We need to work with one another. We need to build relationships with one another and with God to flourish. We can't do it on our own. We need to have the right relationship with God. You need to have your right relationship with yourself and with others to flourish. Without good relationships, people wouldn't create the vast, complex array of goods and services beyond the capacity of one individual could produce. Imagine just one person working. How long would it take to build a, a car, a computer? How long would it take to send mail? No, we need relationships. We need relationships to build cars, computers, to have good systems, to have a good school. We need relationships. Without them, we wouldn't have any stores, any schools, any legislation. No one would be able to accomplish much because we need each other to flourish. Relationships have been part of our makeup since the beginning of the world. God created Eve. He created Adam. Adam and Eve were married, the first married couple we see in the Bible. Marriage and relationships were necessary since the very beginning. Marriage is important. And continuing the creation project. Together, a married couple, they partner together to continue flourishing more than they would be able to do individually. In this marriage, both Adam and Eve worked since they were both image bearers. Adam and Eve had a relationship with one another and with God. Adam and Eve walked with God, and we should too. To summarize everything that we have covered so far before we talk about rest, we have seen, as James M. Hamilton Jr. summarized, God built a cosmic temple. In this temple, he placed his own idol or image bearers, humans. He blessed humans. And this blessing gave humans responsibilities. Blessings with responsibilities. Humans together we're supposed to make the world that God had made good, even better. Better for both plants and animal life. Being in God's image and likeness, mankind was supposed to cultivate the world of vegetation and living creatures in ways reflecting God's own character and creativity. Humans were made and put on, the, on earth as the visible representations of the character, authority, and rule of the invisible God. Why are we here? 
Why do humans exist? Part of the reason, part of the answer, is that we are here to reflect the character of God but how, by how we subdue the earth, by how we work, by how we exercise dominion. Work is therefore built into the created order right from the start. As Tim Keller noted, we have the freedom to find work that suits our gifts and passions. We can be open to greater opportunities for work, of course, when the economy is weak and jobs are less plentiful. And we we don't have any condescension or superiority because we understand that all work is good. And every Christian should be able to identify with conviction and satisfaction. When you go to work, you should be able to identify the ways through your work and how you how your job participates with God and his creativity and cultivation. Now I, I want to talk very little about rest. And we'll talk more about rest uh, some other time in maybe three sermons, but I just want to get started and look at it. There are two words to note in Genesis 2. two. These two words are uh, Shaban and Shabbat. They sound very similar. The first one, Shabbat, is the word for seven. Shabbat means to rest or even to cease, to stop. Rest and cease for Shabbat. So what God did on the seventh day, on the Shabbat, he Shabbat. On the seventh day, he rested, he ceased, he stopped. And this is the word Shabbat, is the word that we get Sabbath. That's the, where we get the word Sabbath from. God Shabbat. God rested. It's like God looked at everything he had done, he created, and just rested. He did a great job. Like, I could relate to this. Sometimes I write a good paper, or at least I feel like I write a good paper. And I'm just like, I Shabbat, I stop, I rest. And I just recognize the work that I have done. That's what God did. He looked at everything that he did, and he rested and appreciated what he created. God still works, but he rested because of his achievement, not because he was exhausted. But there's something much deeper than God just finishing any type of building project. If we look at creation in the ancient Near Eastern lenses instead of the modern empirical scientific lenses that we have today. If we look at it through the ancient Near Eastern perspective, we could see something that we would otherwise miss. Okay, so we have already talked about how God's creation really looks like the building of a temple. In the ancient world, temples were built as a place for gods to rest. Gods in the ancient Near Eastern mind rested in temples. They would build a temple to Baal, and Baal would rest in the temple. But in Genesis, humans don't first build a temple, but God builds this cosmic temple. And then he rests in it. This earth, especially in Eden, was God's holy place, God's sacred place where he rested and where he dwells and resides. Now, we are his image bearers. So this model that God presents of work, work, rest, 
is something we need to acknowledge and reflect. God rested, and he is limitless. We were made with limits out of dust. Our power and authority, all that we have, as we sang early, comes from Jesus. It comes from God. We are limited. If a limitless God rested, if a limitless God rested, how much more do we who have limits need to rest? It's necessary to rest. Yes, find a job that you love to do or learn loving what you are currently doing. But still, you need to rest. We need rest because of our bodies. Our bodies can't keep going forever. forever. We also need it for our souls. We need to rest. We need to stop working and get our focus on God. Of course, we always worship. But on the Sabbath, we worship in a unique way. We need to stop and rest so that we could spend some time focusing on receiving God's love. We need to appreciate all that God has done for us and all that God is doing for us and will do for us. I have started practicing Sabbath again consistently. I stopped when I started a new semester back when summer first started. And without it, back then, I would regularly feel empty out of it, like I didn't have anything to give. I was just barely surviving. But now that Elida and I have been practicing Sabbath, we, we practice it from Friday evening to Saturday evening, we, we do feel pretty great. We, and it, it is hard at times practicing Sabbath because we don't do any work. We may feel that we're not productive. And I, I don't look at my notes. I don't prepare any of my notes. I, don't, I strive to not look at my phone. But now, both of us wish that it was longer. During Sabbath, I, I read, I walk, I pray, I meditate, I sing, I paddleboard, I play, and I've been doing this for over a month now, and I, I'll tell you, I look forward to Sabbathing every week. I experience God in that moment. You know, all of these other religions have a holy space, like a holy mountain or a temple or a shrine. Islam has Mecca, Hinduism has the Ganges River, paganism has Stonehenge, baseball has the AT&T Stadium. But God's holy place is much more than a holy space. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said, the Sabbath, I know you might not be able to see this, the Sabbath, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. The Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. You will find God not in a holy place, but you will find God in a holy time. You will find God in the Sabbath. Don't feel bad for taking a day off out of the week to just rest and be in the presence of God. You're not a machine. You're human. God worked. Therefore, we work. God rested. Therefore, we rest. 
There is a rhythm to this world. As John Mark Homer said, six days we rule and subdue and work and draw out and labor and bleed and wrestle and fight with the ground. But then we take a step back and for 24 hours we Sabbath. We enjoy the fruit of our labor. We delight in God and his world. We celebrate life We rest, we worship. God is inviting us to join him in this rhythm of work and rest. When we don't accept this invitation, we reap the consequences. We feel fatigue, burnout, anxiety, depression, busyness, starved relationships, worn down immune systems, low energy levels, anger, tension, confusion, emptiness. All these are symptoms of a restless life. It's a gift to rest. Take it and rest. Embrace your job. Do the best that you can. Find the best job that is made for you. Embrace your job and embrace rest. Tell God that he is at the center of your job by working as hard as you can, using all of your abilities, doing what you were made to do. And tell God that he is the center of your life by resting and spending time with him. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that today we may start seeing work something good and that if somebody's here who is contemplating like I don't know what to do that this message may help them somehow that they may see that I was made that we were made for something Lord and that you may help them guide their steps and show them what they were made to do I pray, Father, that we may also learn how to rest. Let us learn how to take a break. Let us learn how to find the rhythms of this world. Instead of being out of beat, let us go with shalom, with the way things are. Let us find peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.